Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, hello, you lot. It's Susanna Constantine here. And this is my wardrobe malfunction. This is episode number 76 and the final one of season nine. We've had a lot of lovely messages from you saying you found us recently for the first time and can't believe what you've been missing. Well, we can't believe it either, but we're honoured to have you with us as there are zillions of podcasts out there. So if you like what you hear, please do spread the word to family, friends and colleagues to help others find us too. Right, on to today's special guest. She's someone I've known for decades and always wanted to interview because she's so talented, but way too modest to bang on about it. So I'm going to do that for her. It's the legendary makeup artist, Mary Greenwell, in her first ever, and probably last, podcast interview. So let's grab the handles, open my wardrobe doors, and find out what's inside. Today, I am over the moon to be with my friend, the undisputed queen of makeup. Sorry, Trini. It's the doyen of her industry, makeup artist extraordinaire, Mary Bloody Greenwell. How are you, my beauty? I like the bloody bit. That's really cool. I'm so well, but I'm so happy to be doing this with you because I love you so much and I'm so proud of you, Susanna. I've known you for... How many years have we known each other now? God's sake, Mary. 30? It must be more... Yeah, 30, 35. Yep, absolutely. So... You know, yeah, we've known each other since we were children, almost. Yeah, almost. And then you have always done any kind of major shoots that Trini and I did. And even before then, you're in my book, Ready for Absolutely Nothing, when, do you remember the shoot we did with Snowden? Yes, I do. I mean, no, so that is like, Mary, that is like 40 years, no, not 40 years ago, that's 35 years ago. It was 35 years ago. It was, it was, darling. Yep, yep. And do you remember what an arsehole he was? Uh, yes. But you know what? Hey, I, I mean, I have a soft spot for him because um, I think, you know, he was under a lot of pressure a lot of the time to be something that he wasn't, you know, and I think that... Yeah. Yeah, no, I actually have a soft spot for... I don't, I don't hold on. I try not to hold on to bad memories. Yeah, you're so right. I mean, I loved that shoot, apart from the fact I had to go to an osteopath afterwards because he made me sit up. He would say, straighter, sit up straighter, sit up straighter, straighter, make your neck longer. And then he kept asking you to put more and more makeup on. So I felt like he really did not like what he was seeing. And I turned into a kind of pantomime dame. Oh, darling, you're so beautiful. I mean, maybe I didn't do more because I don't think you need makeup. How about that? 
Yeah, how about that? And that's that's like you, Mary, because when you got into this industry, when you were a little wee 23-year-old and you started working for Fiorucci because you were living in LA, you, you'd never worn makeup, had I'd you? I'd never worn makeup, no. No, that's part of my life story, which is such a beautiful story, that um, when I was working in Joe Allen's on the door, because I couldn't serve food because I'd drop it and I couldn't take orders because I'd forget them. So they put me on the door, which was actually much more fun. So it's like, hi, Paul Newman, here's your table. You know, so I was, I was like literally surrounded by Hollywood in the 70s when, you know, there were very few people's places to eat in L.A. So it was like the same old crowd used to come in every day. It was so much fun. And, um, and so my friends came in on a Sunday morning and I, uh, for lunch. And they looked at me and said, oh, you'd be perfect to represent the makeup counter. I was like... A what? And they said, yeah, yeah, we're opening, you know, they were opening up Fiorucci in L.A. You'd be perfect to represent the makeup in L.A., in, in, in Fiorucci, with a wonderful brand called Il Maquillage, which is, was owned by Ilana Hakavi. It's now been sold to a big corporation, you know, the conglomerate. And so they sent me to New York where I worked with Ilana. And she took me down into her little makeup studio, which was tiny. It was the size of a dining room table, literally. And she did my makeup from start to, to from beginning to end. And, you know, it was time of David Bowie and all of that. So she could have made it very extreme. But all she did was make me look. Actually, I looked in the mirror. I thought, oh, I look great. It was what didn't scare me at all. And I'd never worn makeup before. And, um, and then I went up to the counter in the shop and worked there for two weeks where I was very good at selling makeup to uptown women in New York City, 60th and Madison. And then I came back to LA and worked behind the counter there and had the best time. I mean, it was so much fun. You know, it was literally Sister Sledge and, you know, Gucci, Fiorucci and all that. And it was just an amazing period to be living in Los Angeles and to be alive, frankly. You know, it wasn't, and the world hadn't become quite so... The 70s was, I think, for me, probably the best era ever because um, I was alive there, so I can say that genuinely, and was living the 70s. And it was such a fantastic time to be around, and I feel very lucky to have lived through the 70s and the 80s, actually, and then, you know, but the 70s was amazing. I mean, L.A. at that time must have been, it must have been so different to how it is today because it, there wasn't that kind of extreme divide between the stars and the not stars. And, and they were able just to be normal people. So like you mentioned, um, Paul Newman popping into Joe Allen. So you must have met some incredible people. I did meet some incredible people. One of my, my favorite story of all about meeting incredible people is when the, I, I mean, my life, I'm not going to give you the whole long story, but I rocked up to stay with my friends in, in Laurel Canyon. And um, they were both interviewers and movie stars and reviewers of movies. And they both went out to see a movie that night. And my friend Bridget, who was my doctor's daughter from the country in England, in Midhurst, um, <laughs> literally my doctor's daughter. And she'd gone out to LA like 10 years before and was very beautiful and knew everyone, was very successful at her job. She said to me the next morning, you know, do you want to come and have breakfast with me? So the next morning she said, do you want to come and have breakfast with me? I said, sure, because I had obviously nothing better to do, having just arrived in LA, just 18. And... We went on to have breakfast with Clint Eastwood, and that's my introduction to Hollywood. Oh, my God, you say that so casually in such a throwaway fashion. It was so casual. I mean, we lit I suddenly <laughs> found myself having breakfast with Clint Eastwood the morning I arrived in Los Angeles. So it was like, okay, this was so much fun. And because I was living with these two wonderful human beings, I went to see every movie. I went to see, you know, I met people all the time. So by the time I got to work in Joe Allen's, I was like so used to being around 
quote-unquote celebrity. But to your point, darling, there was no bodyguards, there was no nothing. It was not the time of like everyone, you know, there was no Instagram, there was no... There was no pe cameras following people around. It was just so much more, actually, in a way, artistic and yeah. um, pure, the industry. Mm. So um, where where did you grow up? You mentioned Midhurst, but do you where did you grow up? I grew up in Sussex. I first of all grew up, I was born in, a, well, I was born in London. And then for the first four years of my life, I lived in River, which is between Midhurst and Petworth, literally up the hill. yeah. And then I moved to West Burton, which was, which was between Pulber and, and, and Mid Petworth, to a bigger house under the Downs. And um, yeah, I had the most amazing childhood. Very, I have to say, very privileged and very spoiled. Um, I don't know whether, and I had a twin sister um, who was divine. I didn't know that. Yeah, well, she passed away, my darling. Yeah. Um, she, she was, I'm afraid, you know, whereas I went to Los Angeles, at the age of 18, she came back to London, I'm afraid, as was very trendy at the time, started taking heroin and, you know, became an addict and actually lived for a very long time. But anyway, so she was an addict, I'm afraid. So eventually her body gave up on her. Yeah. I mean, it was that time. I mean, I remember kind of how old, let's say, 1962, 72, well, early 80s. I mean, all my friends at that time were heroin addicts. And I remember... Yeah. going to, there was this sort of smack den on Hogarth Road off the um, off Earl's Court and I'd go and hang out there and there were all the boys that were taking heroin were all the most beautiful boys around on the scene. They were so beautiful, so bright, but obviously disillusioned and the romanticism of life hadn't lived up to its expectation. But it, it was and it was a very privileged drug at that time. Very. Because it was so expensive. And luckily I didn't have to find out there because I never went down that route. And I used to come back from LA and see my sister smacked out on the bed, you know, and think, oh my God, this is so sad and, and sordid. Mm. Um, and never, it never interested me. And then no, anyway, I was going back to Los Angeles where I was having much more fun. And, you know, the thing is, you know, about LA, which is so interesting, I think drugs didn't really hit Los Angeles until the late 70s. Mm. Um, which is, a, you know, a huge blessing on everyone, of course. But there wasn't that, you know, heroin certainly wasn't a drug that hit America big time um, until, you know, the late 70s, rather than the early 70s, when it hit London big time, you know. Mm. And let's face it, I mean, you know, I think that this, I think we're prone, myself included, um, you know, we're prone to be very addictive in this country. Well, I think creative people are. Yeah, I think, and and also sensitive people. For some reason, this country is very accepting of you know. I mean, if you go to, if you go to a party in France for someone, no one gets as drunk as the English. No one, you know. There's something here, but we're very accepting of extreme <laughs> behaviour in this country, as you know. It's so true. And you know, I mean, you just you wouldn't behave like that in Italy or in France. You just wouldn't behave the way we all behave here. You know. Mm. And I'm talking about from every walk of life, whether you're creative, whether you're, you know, whatever you do, it's every walk of life, you know. I mean, I think that most people are creative, frankly. I think that we all, you know, whatever job you have, you probably have to be, you know, if you're good at it, you're definitely creative at what you're doing. Mm. But um, no, it's a very interesting thing about English society, English life, the English lifestyle, rather. Yeah, it's very true. So kind of going to the extreme, because in a way there was a sort of innocence, really, in America, the sort of flower power innocence that lasted longer. And talking about innocence, your first big client was 
Brooke Shields, is that right? Yes. So this is a, one, the wonderful story of when I was in New York with Ilana, and she's so divine. And I remember she said to me, will you come to the studio with me tomorrow and carry my makeup bag? So I was like, you know, and I've never been, this is my only assistant job ever in my life. And we walked up to Scavulo's studio. Scavulo was as wonderful, not quite as recognized, but sort of, you know, up there with Penn and Abaddon, like really, really important New York photographer. And we walked in the studio and she said, you know, can you lay my makeup out? So I did that, no problem. I mean, I'd been working in the shop for two weeks and I was you know, being quite sort of thorough. Laid all her makeup out and in walked Brooke Shields. And, and Ilana, who was talking to Scavulo, said, um, I think you should do the makeup today because we'd actually lied to her and told her I'd done Bieber makeup in London, which was absolutely not true at all. <laughs> and, um, you know, and Bieber just closed down so they couldn't ever, ever sort of... D- d- tap into that. The nearest I got to the Bieber counter, makeup counter was actually working the boots boot section of Bieber in, in one Christmas holidays. So I had sold boots in Bieber, but certainly not makeup. Anyway, so Brooke walked in and, and she said, I think you should do makeup. Lady. So there, here was 14-year-old Brooke. Brooke. 14. So I went to the makeup room, did her makeup, did, did everything Alana had done on me to suit Brooke's colouring, which was completely different from mine, and came out an hour later and said she's ready. And Scarullo and, and Ilana said, um, well, bring her out then. So I said, Brooke, can you come out, please? And they said, they, lovely, thank you, Mary. And I went back to the makeup room and burst into tears. I, oh, my goodness, I did it. So that was literally my first makeup that I'd ever done on anyone to the, you know, to, from, from the base to the mascara and everything in between. So that was like, oh, my goodness, I can do this. And it was really fun. So I went back to LA and was quite cocky and had the best time um, working in Ferrucci. I mean, what an induction to do a 14-year-old Brooke Shields. Because was that when she was doing all the, her first Calvin Klein shoots? Or was that pre that That, that was probably pre that, darling. Because I remember I went okay. on shoot with her, with, with Patrick Marchelier, to do a, um, a Calvin Klein thing. And, you know, then, then and she had her mother with her all the time still. So it was, it was prior to that. And also it was a time when, you know, it was, we're talking about 1975 now-ish. And um, it was a time when, you you know, there were two dresses there, which Scavulo chose one of them. And her hair had been blow-dried before she came to the studio. There was no credits in magazines. There was no kind of great big hullabaloo about, you know, getting on the bad wagon of getting your name all over the place. There was, no, there was no sort of sponsorship. There was nothing. It was purely about doing our job, and that was it. Because there was no social media. There was nothing to back the kind of influence society we live in now. So it was a very interesting, innocent, to your point, as you said before, a very sweet, innocent time when everything was just much more living in the moment and doing things that was sort of there was a freedom, which there isn't now. Exactly. It must have given you so much more freedom. And what a great basis for you to perfect your art Yeah, in in a way that actually came from you, not the big corporations. 100%. I mean, now it's amazing how different the industry is now. People, I'm not going to talk about and compare myself to anybody, whatever, but, you know, I know how much makeup artists now of extremely high caliber you know, they pay for themselves to get here, then everywhere. I mean, it's just insane. There's not that sort of, you know, we used to go on trips when I first started. And I started working with Grace Coddington. And um, so Grace Coddington, the famous flame-haired beauty from Vogue. Yes. Mm. And when, what happened is I remember that um, I went, so in 1984, I moved to Paris 
And I've been with, um, I've been in London now for like a year or something, well, more than that, but a couple of years actually. And sort of just thinking about, do I really want to do makeup and doing other odd jobs and sort of thinking, do I really, because I knew what I'd be like, I knew I'd be so concentrated. And um, I went, and I, then in 1982, I joined an agency, Melissa Richardson, you know Melissa, don't you? Mm-mm, no, I don't. She started an agency called Take Two, which was a model agency, and um, and we agreed that she would take me on. And then, of course, we realized that she was actually a model agency. And then, so I went to Sessions, which was the best hair makeup agency in London at the time. And they were divine. And I worked with um, Vanessa Delal, who was with Harper's and Queen. Oh, the wonderful that. Vanessa. Yes. And one of my first shoots was with with Pamela Hansen, who was heaven and is heaven. And Pamela said, "You should come to Paris. There aren't you know there aren't people." You know, there was such a small industry in those days. I could, you know, come and live in Paris. You do really well there was something encouraging and sweet and kind. So I went off to Paris in 1984. In the morning, I went off to Paris. For better or for worse, your podcast listeners will either hate this or love it. In the morning, I did Margaret Thatcher's makeup. And in the afternoon, I went to Paris for USO. And, and then off I went to Paris in 1984. So doing Margaret Thatcher's makeup was quite something, actually. Oh, my God. Do you know, I absolutely... But she was, Margaret Thatcher was my absolute role model, not because of her politics at all. I wasn't interested in politics at the time. I had, couldn't give given a damn. But as a woman who pushed her way and fought her way and got the top job, she was one of the few female role models around she really at that was. time. Yeah, she was amazing. So I went to 10 Downing Street and there was no barrier. There was nothing. I rocked up my beaten up old little red car. I remember it so clearly. And there was only a sort of thing that went up and down. Like, you know, there was no gates. And there was one guard at the bottom of 10 Downing Street. And I said, hi. He said, what is I'm coming to see Margaret Thatcher. What's your name? Mary Green. And the barrier went up and off I went. And I parked where all the press now are lined up the entire time, just on the other opposite 10 Downing Street. <laughs> parked my car there, knocked on the door of 10 Downing Street. they come up. So I went up into her private study um, and sort of they said, set your makeup up here. No problem. Did that. Not phased about meeting Margaret Thatcher, frankly, because she hadn't yet, you know, well, it was a big speech that she made, but I wasn't phased. And I heard this booming voice coming down the stairs, and I thought, oh, here she comes. And then she, she was so kind to me. And Carol, who is exactly the same age as me, was, I mean, we talked about Carol and me, and she wished me the best of luck and to take care of myself and look after myself. And my daughter, same age as you are, and was absolutely the most divine woman I've ever, ever met on that level of being like a mother. Mm. and so so kind and regardless of her politics she was really amazing and I loved being with her and then she was doing actually a speech about the coal mining thing which of course we know there are many different opinions about this whole Mm. thing and it was for the BBC we went into one of the state rooms of 10 Downing Street and she said would you like to hear my would you like to hear my speech I said I'd love to so I went in and stood behind the cameras of the BBC and um, she gave her speech she made it was about a 20 minute speech and she made one mistake she kept going. And then the end of the end of it, she said, uh, okay, I have to go back to the beginning because I made one mistake. I thought, oh my goodness, this woman is brilliant. She read it, she didn't read it. She actually spoke it again. And um, and then got up and said, thank you. Came over and gave me a great big hug, literally, and said, good luck in Paris this afternoon. And um, it actually makes you want to cry because- I know, I can hear the emotion. Yeah, and she was so kind to me. And then I got went home, picked up my bags, and went off to Paris. God, man. what a day, eh? 
What a day. And then in Paris, you worked with all the world's top photographers. Uh, who, who impressed you the most and left the greatest impression? Yeah, so when I got to Paris, obviously I worked with, um, you know, Pamela Hansen. Then um, Hans Fiora booked me to go on this trip. And don't forget, trips in those days used to, this literally, for one story in a Vogue, you know, used to go away for like t six days, literally. I mean, it was like, no, yeah. you know, no one was stopping you going anywhere. It was like we had all the travel and the freedom and there was budgets. But no one had gone that big production bu budgets, um, yeah, so it was very, very small. It was the phonographer had one assistant. I never had an assistant. One hairdresser, one model, one stylist, and that was it. And the stylist had sometimes an assistant, sometimes not, by the way. So it was very small teams. North used to go into these amazing places. I remember I went somewhere. I went to Morocco with Hans Führer, and he thought I was great, which was wonderful. And then he was going to Hawaii with Grace Coddington. In the, I met him in... Um, August, and then he worked with me. And he, then I met Grace Coddington in September because Hans wanted to take me to Hawaii for a big, like three stories of Vogue in January. So I met Grace in um, in Paris to see whether she liked me at all because, I mean, I wasn't, you know, it was the point where the stylists had the most power. They still do, by the way, but it was all mm. about, you know, Grace was so important and so wonderful. Anyway, so often I went to Hawaii with Grace and, um, and um, Hans Fuhrer, and then Grace was amazing and wonderful. And I worked with Grace and Little Berries for like the next two years, nonstop. And who was the model that you went to Hawaii with? Um, Michel Ubi. And then um, then through Grace, I met, you know, I met Patrick Marchelier, um, Penn. I mean, I was blessed to work with Irving Penn and Abaddon oh. and, and blessed to work with these guys before, you know, before their time was up, wow. literally. And so I had the most amazing time in New York and, you know, then in Paris and then moved to New York. I moved in with my delicious friend, Sam McKnight, who the gate crashed the New Year's Eve party I had in London because he wanted to meet me um, in 1984, stroke 85, and then uh, moved to Paris, New York in 85. And then you were kind of part of the whole um, uprising, if you like, of all the original supermodels. So Cindy, 100%. Linda, Claudia, Helena, Naomi, all that lot. And was that with, because you and Sam kind of rose at the Sam McKnight amazing most kind of the equivalent to you in hair, hair styling. Um, were you working together a lot at that time? I mean, a, a lot, a lot, a lot, because he was, you know, he was working with Patrick too. We, we, we lived together in the same house in Jane Street um, in the West Village, and we used to walk to work, you know, having left our boxes at Patrick's studio. We used to, we used to walk up the road to his studio in, in you know, so on the 23rd Street, just walk to work every day, the two of us. It was, I mean, really, 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 we were, like, inseparable. Just because mm. we had the same photographers and we... The first supermodel I ever met was Cindy Crawford in Paris when we did a Vantier shoot, Vantier magazine. And Cindy walked on. She was just arrived in... This is 1984. They all arrived in Paris in 1984, which is the year I was there too. And so we all were staying in a little hotel called Rue Saint-André-des-Arts, Hotel Saint-André-des-Arts on Rue Saint-André-des-Arts in the 6th. And um, Linda arrived then, everyone, they all arrived at the same Paris at the same time. And so I went, I met them all before we went to New York in, 19, before we all went to New York in 1985. And we all kind of moved together, you know, we were a little, we were a little team, basically. Yeah, it was like everything was converging at the same time, hair, makeup, 
the supermodels and and working did the working with the supermodels change everything for you no because I came in the beginning of the supermodels so I didn't okay. have a career before that so to speak do you know what I mean I was blessed yeah. to be going to Paris but I was working in London two two years prior to that but just building up my mm. uh confidence and portfolio and whatever you know so no we just I just was happened to be there at the same time as them and happened to be working with the same photographers and happened to be blessed to you know have certain people wanting to work with me frankly you know mm. meaning Grace Coddington and these other great photographers and there was only like five makeup artists and there were five supermodels and that was it and we were and five hairdressers yeah. you know and that was it there was Julianne Dees, um, you know, um, there was Julianne Dees, Orbe, of course. Um, there was um, Didier Malige, Sam. Um, yeah, I mean, that was it, you know. And, and yeah, and, and then makeup-wise, it was me, um, Francois Nars, um, Kevin O'Coin. And then, of course, my darling Mary, you were introduced to Princess Diana, how did that happen? We were in yeah. London and Patrick had been down to her home um, in the country taking pictures of her and the boys prior to this, but under, um, under the NDA. And then um, it was agreed by Anna Harvey, who was also helping her style herself, um, to, to do a Vogue cover. So we were, we, again, we were, Sam and I were doing the hair and Patrick was flown over to do the, do the pictures. And Anna, it's, you know, we were told... We weren't told who the person was coming through the door. We were just told to look smart. So Sam wore a tie, which, of course, you didn't ever do in those days. And I remember I was wearing a really nice white shirt and black trousers. And he was wearing a white shirt and tie and black trousers. And, you know, we were in a studio in the East End, where all the studios were at the time, in a sm very small studio. And, um, and so we were like, you know, who's coming in the door, for goodness sake? Don't worry, she'll be here in a minute. And in walked Princess Diana, and it was like... You know, she was absolutely divine. I mean, the sweetest person mm. in the world. And then, as we all know, Sam did her hair for, you know, for all, her, all her life. But, you know, she didn't, mm. she needed, when you go on trips, you don't need someone to do your makeup. But you do need someone to do your hair. But what I used to do, because I lived around the corner from her in, in you know, in Notting Hill. I used to go and see her in the palace and just go and hang out with her and be with her in the palace. She used to call me up and say, can you come and see me? So I used to go around there, give her makeup lessons and hang out with her when the boys were tiny and be all over her, like, you know, as children are. And it was just an extraordinary time, actually, that I'd be in this person's life on such an intimate level without any expectation. Again, going to Kensington Palace and just knocking at the door, you know, where she lived in Kensington Palace and just knocking at the door and say, hi, and the everyone would say, hi, Mary, up you go, blah, blah, blah. It was really extraordinary, actually. I can so understand that, Mary, because you're a kind of walking, warm hug. And with her, it must have been like she felt, OK, well, here is someone who I completely trust and who has nothing to gain from me other than to enjoy my company. And that must have been quite rare for her. I think it was, darling. I mean, in a nutshell, I think, I mean, I have to agree with you. I think she was, you know, very lonely, as we all know, you know. So, yes, I felt, you know... Very lucky. And, um, but it was also really, I mean, it was really fun, you know. I remember one time she, I went there in the morning and she said, do you want to stay for lunch? And I was like, sure, why not? Mm. So um, we went into the dining room at Kensington Palace and there was a round table. And it was me and her and a couple of other women and then there's all these other men, probably ministers and whatever. And everyone sat down to eat. And it was like, and, you know, I was put 
somewhere on the table, obviously, and we all had a lovely time. But it was very interesting how she was very charismatic. It wasn't just because of who she was, but every time she started to talk, everyone would stop talking to find out what she was going to say and then start their conversations again, unless it was something that they, she wanted or the minister beside her wanted everyone to hear, do you know? So it was very much a sort of, um, it was obviously a work lunch for her but, and for everyone around mm. that table except for me. But um, it was interesting how she did control the room, you know, when, when needed. She was, she was very good at that, much more so than people actually even realise. Yeah, much more so than people gave her credit for. Well, indeed, yeah. She's always been portrayed as someone who was a bit, bit thick, but she wasn't. I mean, clearly she was, you know, what you're talking about, she was the ringmaster and she knew exactly what she was doing and was very smart. Yeah, I mean, mm. you know, she was the first person to hug an AIDS victim in this country, you know? She was amazing. Yeah. yeah. God, yeah. I'm getting emotional again. And Suzanne, you're making me really emotional, darling. But you know what? You've been a... You've been a part of so many people's, extraordinary people's lives um, because, because you are extraordinary. Not only are you the best in the industry, but as a person. Oh, and no. that, that is a complete reflection of you and who you are. And you, 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 know, you did all her makeup for all the sort of big events and public red carpet events and... Was she comfortable with t sort of becoming this megastar? I think she was, actually, to be very frank. Yeah. I yeah, think, yeah. you know, I think if you're pushed aside by, you know, one side of your life and then you're, you're embraced by another, you're going to go with it. Mm. Mm. I mean, in my opinion, and I think she was right to do that. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I, I, by the way, I'm, you know, I think, I think King Charles is great. So that's not the point. Mm. But she absolutely um, enjoyed the, the exposure. Yeah. Mm. Because also she was always doing good things under this kind of, you know, under, with this exposure and with this popularity and with her, you know, beautiful looks and her amazing limbs. I mean, you know, to go through, you know, go through fields of, you know, minefields, et cetera, and, be there for mm. so many people and to be really become, you know, the, what, I mean, her qualities of love were extraordinary. Her ability to love were, were major, you know. Mm. And so doing the kind of, you've done other members of the royal family. In fact, you've just flown back from Jordan doing the royal wedding out there, classic Mary. But doing makeup for royals, is it different from doing models and, you know, famous women movie stars and stuff is there a difference between the two not at all i mean they everyone mm. wants to look their best everyone wants to be made to everyone wants to be made to feel comfortable um and also you know frankly i mean the, we're all the same inside whether you have a, a, a queen title in front of you or just missus in front of you or mister in front of you or whatever we're all the same all human beings so i mm. don't see these people who have these major titles any different from anybody else i mean they're just wonderful people and if you know if, if they're, they're blessed if i'm blessed for them to care about me and love me then i'm i'm the lucky one so no they're just wonderful people and really really mm. nice i mean i really love the Jordanian royal family i think they're extraordinary you know yeah and they are all, all the women are so beautiful, my goodness. They're so beautiful. And, but they you know that, the, I mean, the men are divine. They're the, the Jordanian royal family are 
just beyond great as far as I'm concerned. Mm. They're just so sweet and kind yeah. and wonderful. You know? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah. Linda Evangelista, she in particular was your muse, wasn't she? No, I think Christy oh. was. I think Christy was my muse. Oh, really? Christy I think Tarnington. Christy Tarnington is, I think Linda is extraordinary. I mean, I, you know, we all watched Linda morph into this unbelievable model I mean she was I mean she was everyone's muse and the fact that we all were like oh my goodness she just turned out to be the most astounding model but you know when she first arrived in Paris it took a while for her to get into that world I mean a while six months but I mean Christy rocked up and she was already like the supermodel of all time because she was I mean I didn't know they all were but I think the, the first one I met as I said was was um Cindy who was so beautiful and then Christy, they were all, I think Christy is known to probably be the most beautiful woman in the world. Yeah. I mean, Linda Evangelista, she, she it probably was, took her a bit longer because she had such a unique, strong look. But also when Linda rocked up in, 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 in Paris, first of all, she had this you know, long, dark hair and then Julianne Deese cut it off and changed her look completely. You know, mm. so there's, you know, she really, really, really was the most unbelievable model. But she had a lot of people kind of getting her to that point in the best possible way because she's so beautiful. But it was um, it was more of a sort of effort, to your point. It was more of mm. it was a, it was an absolute sort of determination that she had, steely determination. I kind of often wonder, to have made your living through your looks and your beauty, how difficult it must be to age. So someone like Christy Turnington has done it naturally and beautifully. Um, and then Linda Evangelista made that announcement that she um, left the public eye, having been, as she said, uh, permanently deformed by a cosmetic procedure. I mean, do you, it seems that really, I mean, that was just a hideous mistake, it seems, and really unfortunate. But the majority of the big supers, they don't seem to have overdone cosmetic surgery or fillers or Botox. I think, you know, the thing about being one of those supermodels is you are naturally incredibly beautiful. So if you just accept your aging process, it's not going to be that bad. And they all have wonderful lifestyles. They all married the most divine men. 
And, you know, I'm talking about Christy and, and, Christy and Cindy particularly, you know, who, mm. you know, they've got, they've got the most amazing lives, you know. So, mm. and, you know, they, they can have, the, the, of course, the best of everything. But they, you know, also they just, I think they want to portray themselves as they are because they're also intelligent enough to realize that aging is part of, the, of life. And so they're mm. not going to transform or mutate their faces into something they're not because they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be these people any longer. Yeah, so true. I mean, that is, it's like the cosmetic procedures now have become more and more common today. And I mean, that must make your job a nightmare sometimes. I mean, do you ever, have, do you ever work with women who have had too much cosmetic surgery? I actually don't, darling. I don't. Yeah. I mean, you know, I absolutely don't because um, I think most people I work with are too intelligent to do that, you know, and um, no. Um, I actually yes. was, a, was a doctor on BBC Four this morning talking about this before Women's Hour, by the way, saying mm. that, you know, she's very careful about what she does and whatever. I think, you know, if you can afford, afford to go to the right people and whatever, most women know it's better to grow old gracefully than to have look like you've had. I mean, there's so much bad face work around, but that's not the people we know. You know, let's face it. It's you see it in I think in Italy it's worse, for example, and other places, but not in not so much. For some reason, I think actually in England, we're more controlled with the face work than other countries. Okay, we get drunk faster and whatever, whatever. But also we have this less thing about looking, looking perfect, which I think a lot of um, other countries maybe have more of. You know, sort of. Do you know what I mean? Like that sort of perfect look. Yeah, that, I agree with sort of. I mean, there are obviously exceptions of our generation. But I, I just feel sad. I think it's an epidemic amongst young women now yeah. here as well, and 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 I find that so sad because they they have all these filters on their cameras for Instagram or whatever or TikTok, whatever they're doing, and then they expect when they look in the mirror to look the same as the photograph they've taken, where they've had all these filters, you know, smoothing it all out. And then they go and have the cos cosmetic surgery. And I just think, you know, I wish there were more people who, you know, famous beauties who kind of spoke more openly against that. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe one isn't a beauty, quote unquote, any longer after a certain age. Like, no, but these are girls, Mary, who are 20 years old. You know, it's insane. It is insane. I know it's insane. But, you know, we know we know the one person to blame for all of this, and we're not going to say any names. But, you know, there's sort of, yeah, I mean, again, but I, I'm going to put it all down to social media, darling. Yeah. I really am. I'm going to say that's been the sort of the most corruptive disruptive, um, disfiguring thing, of, or, you know, just the fact that we are so scared on social media. Mm, mm. I think it's really, really a fact. That's why yeah. we love radio so much. And to your point, that's why, you know, just chatting on a podcast is much more, um, you know, you have no, I mean, you know what I'm looking like right now, but the, your listeners have no idea. I could be you know, picking my nose, it wouldn't matter. You know, it's sort of, mm. there's this freedom with uh, with the voice only that is much mm. more, well, it's much, much freer than having the visual thing too, you know. Uh, but I think it shouldn't be the case. I really do. I mean, I, I, I am so, you know, I think, every, you know, everyone, of course, has a choice and everyone, you know, I'm not 
I'm I'm not pro or against people having fillers and Botox and everything. It's just not something I choose to do. Do you have um, no cosmetic surgery at all, my love? No. I mean, no cosmetic um, um, in, in, invasion at all. Nothing. You don't have any invasion. I do. No, I have no Botox, no fillers, nothing. And sometimes I look at myself and I think, my God, you are such a beauty. Oh, and then I get myself in the real life and I go, fuck, what a mess. And then I think about it and then I, I go, well... You know, oh God, I, I, it's, it's too much time. I'm too lazy. It's a it's a big financial and investment of your time to keep topped up with all of that. It is, but you know, I I feel that um, it's very much part of my thing now. I've had Botox now probably for like maybe eight about eight years. Have you? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I have Profilo, which I adore. I love. What's profile. that? It's when they they inject hydrochloric acid into your hydrochloric acid into your like five points on each side of your face and down your neck too, which is another four points, and you end up with little bubbles, and you and then the bubbles will disappear over the 20, next twenty four hours or twelve hours, and then it creates collagen under the skin. Oh, okay. Yep, and I'm a firm believer that I go to one doctor only, who I simply adore. That sort of sounds quite good because it's not, it's kind of, it's just tightening the skin. Whereas I, I find what I think, I mean, I never, you know, I'm very surprised that you do because you look so natural. You look fabulous. You've got great bone structure. You've got amazing features. So I'm very surprised because you look, you know, I would never have known. Well, you would but never have known have, because I go to the, the best doctor. It's the fillers and the excessive Botox. It's so obvious. It's like, what's the point of having it if it's obvious? You know, you, you, you just want to look well, don't you? Yeah, and you probably do want to look a few years younger than you are, let's face it. Yeah. Just for one's confidence, not for no other reason. Um, just because, you know, I mean, youth is such a... It, you I mean, to your point I agree that more people should you know own up to their age or whatever but you know youth is so appealing isn't it I mean it just is I and, know and it um, is. you don't want to walk into a room and feel old you know and you sort of do things you know hopefully you eat well and properly I mean what I find really sad is how many people allow themselves to get very overweight these days which I find absolutely mm. tragic you know I think um, I think that's a real tragedy, frankly. And, you know, people say, but they can't help it. Yes, you can help it. Just don't eat so much. You know, there's a sort of thing, the gluttonous thing that's running. And, and it sounds quite bigoted and it sounds quite judgmental. And let me own up and say, maybe it is. But I really mm. worry about people putting on so much weight. But I think that's because the food, as the food on offer, well, healthy food for, for a start is expensive, yep. especially now you know, fruit and vegetables. And it's so much cheaper to go to KFC or McDonald's. And in all, you know, so much of the food, apart from actual fresh ingredients, is filled with shit. It's filled with too much sugar. It's filled with too much salt. And so that th those are, it's the manufacturers that I blame more right. than the people who, who get overweight. Right, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. I hear you. But my love, so um, what's the most challenge you have with these high-profile jobs, do you think? Or do you just get on with it and not worry about it? Yeah, I just get on with it, my love. I don't have a challenge. With I mean, I've been, you know, when, if you've been working now for, since, you know, since the 80s, um, you know, since 82, that's 
hold on, that's 40 years I've been doing mm. this, you know. And um, I, well, and then in the 70s, I was, you know, trained as a makeup. So I've been, you know, I, because of this, this is just in my blood. I mean, it kind of worries me that I can't do anything else. And I mean that genuinely, not, not for you to feel sorry for me, or for anyone to feel sorry for me, of course. But it's like, okay, I've really sort of created this world. That, but, um, you know, I worry about... I sometimes worry about, as we all do, about what we're going to do when we get older and blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, they don't think I don't go through all those concerns. But Mary, you can do this for, you can do this forever. As long as you're, you don't get kind of rheumatoid arthritis. This is going to, God forbid, this is going to be something you can do forever. Well, that's true, except you can be someone's grandma and you don't, you know, you walk in the room and you're not, you know, some young actress, you know, I know doesn't want her grandma doing her makeup. She'll, they'd rather go with someone, you know, who's younger, <laughs> more connected and, you know, no, no, more connected to them age-wise. Um, you know, and so, you know, I'm also very aware of that, you know, that it's sort of, it's, my career is amazing, but, you know, I totally appreciate that young actresses, and young celebrities want someone more of their own age, you know, who they can look at and mm. sort of have more of a sort of natural giggle with rather than the grandma giggle with, you know? And that's not putting oh, myself I down. I don't just... agree. I, I mean, that's you saying that about yourself. I don't, I absolutely vehemently disagree with that because, you know, I think with all these sort of young models and film actresses, I think to have, and, and you know, speaking on a very little teeny weeny level myself, it's like if you're doing a sh big shoot or something, it's very nerve-wracking. And to have someone like you to this kind of almost, you know, it's like a maternal figure to keep you safe, to know that you're in really good, experienced hands must be such a comfort. Yeah, and also, um, you know, because of being around so long and in front of working with the, the best photographers, I mean, if you can't really get bigger than Avedon and Penn, right, and mm. Patrick and, and that generation, um, you know, I mean, I know lighting so well. And so, mm. you know, what I will always do is make sure the lighting is great for the person in front of the camera, you know, to the to the detriment of the photographer sometimes who's trying to do some kind of, like, you know, very special lighting. And you kind of go, oh, no, 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 just pull that light around. You know, stop, stop, stop trying to give someone shadows where there aren't any. You're creating, you're creating shadows, you know. So, mm. um, you know, beauty lighting is, is where, so I can be quite controlling, which is some, what some people actually do really love. It's like, Sorry, that lighting is unacceptable, you know? Yeah. Have you ever thought of um, doing photography? Shall I tell you what? I would be the worst timer. in. I mean, I would always flick at the wrong moment, you know, like, just lose that, that magic moment. I just know it's not in me. But then, of course, you realise all photographers take so many pictures to get one picture that maybe it would be in me. But, mm. you know, that whole thing about sort of perfection, immediate perfection, I don't think, you know, I would look at the first picture, oh, I missed that. And then look at that, oh, I missed it again. And so I just give myself no um, time to exp to experiment. You know what I mean? Just sort of, no, I did, would not want to be a photographer. Yeah. And again, having worked with the best, you know, you realise it is absolutely in their blood too, by the way. You know, there's sort of, of course. something, you know, so, so, you know, creative about being a photographer. It's extraordinary, mm. you know. So of all the people you've met, whose style or maybe just that aura has blown you away? Um, well, I mean, you know, let's say Princess Diana, let's say the Queen of Jordan, and then, you know, other, I mean, I would say Cape Blanchard is, you know, the, the most wonderful person in the world. You know, I love her so much, and she's, um, she means the world to me. So, Kate, mm. yeah.
Yeah, because you work with her so much, don't you? I mean, you are you always work with her for everything. I mean, I'm not going to start talking about Kate, but she's absolutely my... No. You know, yeah, but I mean, I think I'm very, very blessed to be working with her. And I, she means the world yeah, yeah. to me. She really does. And she's an astounding woman. Super clever, super wonderful, kind, generous, sweet, you know, most loving mother. She's amazing. And I think one of the very few who has her own style and isn't kind of governed by stylist and stylists and fashion houses. I mean, she's just so individual and amazing. She is. And she's, you know, she's mm. so beautiful. And there's someone who hasn't had, you know, hasn't had the work done, you know. There you go. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And she looks, well, she's got those fabulous cheekbones which help. But is there anyone who you haven't um, made up who you'd like to do? I think if they are, they probably all passed away by now, you know. I mean, I would love to have done Elizabeth Taylor in the days, you know. Yeah. I would love to have done her, especially she has the same birth date as me. That would have been amazing. But, you know, I think she was so beautiful. I really, I know there's no one I'm calling it. Oh, I wish, you know, Elizabeth Taylor is the only one, I think. So, my love, you travel a lot. Yep. And um, is there anything you take with you, like a sort of, is there anything you consider to be a comfort blanket that is always with you? I always, always, always have, I do actually have a blanket with me always. No matter, you know, I'm blessed to be travelling, you know, sort of in a nice um, comfortable seat but I always take my own blanket actually to your point always 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 I don't really have anything specific because I'm find that I can normally get it in the hotel when I arrive I mean when I think of you I always think of a your hair yeah okay, okay which I love your pink hair Mary's got pink hair and it suits her so well makes her eyes look very blue but you always have the most fabulous earrings as well Okay, that's really, so my earrings, okay, it's really, okay, so I went to a party this last weekend and I forgot to put my jewellery on before I left the hotel and I was so frustrated and so miserable, I felt naked without, so I always wore my hair in front of my ears. Then a friend of mine went back to the hotel and I gave her my keys and said, please, can you get my jewellery? She came back with the earrings and I put them in and I felt immediately dressed. I feel naked without earrings. Well, there you go. Those are your comfort blankets. There you go. That's my, yes, I feel naked without my earrings. I do. Now, I know you've been asked this probably many times before, um, but is there sort of one makeup tip for a teenager and let's say a woman in who's sort of 30s, in her 30s, and then an old bat like me. Let's start with teenage. I mean, I just think that if you're young and beautiful, then you, you know, just don't worry about makeup, please. Just stay natural for as long as possible. I mean, I guess for a teenager, it would have to be something like a lip balm. Let's face it. I mean, just a really yeah. good lip balm and that's it. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I had my godchildren, who you know, came to see me the other day. Um, Toby's... Toby's girls, and they then I had all this makeup piled on the table to, for them to pick makeup up, which was really fun because I hadn't been for ages, and we went through the makeup and whatever. And I put I put on both of them, um, on my godchild Estelle and on Callow as well. I put a little bit of concealer under because we all have dark circles and they're so young and beautiful, and then a little bit of blush, and then mascara. So yeah, those three it. products are really for me like the essential ones. Concealer just to lift under the eye area. So now we're moving on. Just not to forget about. This is not only for teenagers. This is for for people in in life. Concealer is really important to lift the area under your eye. Um, a bit of blush to pop your cheek. Uh, mascara to open your eyes up. 
And then in my case, I will never leave home without lipstick. If there's one product I would take on my desert island, it would be lipstick. Okay, but you've got fabulous full lips. So they're kind of one of your best features. You're lucky that you can do lips and eyes. Well, what do you mean, my love? We can all do lips and eyes, can't we? No, I think you've got to have, well, I think, and I'm probably totally wrong, um, but I think if you've got kind of quite thin lips, like I have, mm. uh, lipstick can make them look even more mean. I find that with myself. If I put, I never wear lipstick, ever, ever, ever. So do you wear lip balm? Do you give them some kind of gloss shine, expansion? No. Do you yeah. anything Because I up? used to use, do you remember Juicy Tube, Juicy Juicy Tubes from Lancome? Do you remember that? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I can't get them anymore, and I just want, like, a natural shine, and I can't find it anywhere. Well, um, yeah, Clay de Peau do a really nice lip, a natural, but so many companies do, but so many people do. Yeah. Then, yeah. Okay, so lipstick, bit of lip, bit of cheek, and mascara, and a bit of concealer. Always. Concealer is okay. really important at any age. It really will lift that whole eye area and expand your, sort of expand your face. It's like... Okay, so there's two things I feel naked without um, if I'm doing anything at all with my face. Well, my earrings for sure, and then concealer. Right. Mascara, concealer, blush, and lipstick are the four products that everyone, in my opinion, are the products I can't do without. Therefore, I feel everyone can't do without them. And what about, um, so which concealer would you recommend? Um, this is a personal question. Yeah, I like I, I like the, you know quite hard concealers. I don't like I love the um, Armani um, luminous silk concealers, right? But I also like ones that you put on with your finger. Like I'm using um, anything you just like dab on because I only put, use makeup. I only put on makeup with my fingers. I do not use sponges because I find the sponges yeah. just take off half the makeup you're trying to put on. Frankly, and you can't blend. I've got these very, I've got very big masculine hands and. They're working hands, so that's absolutely fine by me. But the end of my fingers are very soft and spongy. They almost feel like sp spongy anyway. They feel like sponges. Mm. So just to blend my fingers is great. So I like um, concealers. You can then sort of just blend in with your fingers, basically. So, you know, normally hard concealers, if you like. Monica Blunder does a great okay. product um, that's like you can use as a foundation. Yeah. You can thin out and use a foundation. I mean, the most important thing is your skincare regime. That's the most important thing. For every age, I agree. What's your worst wardrobe malfunction been? Um, I, no, I think my favourite wardrobe memory is when I was moved to LA. And I was in, it's a long story, but the short, the short version of it is I, was, I walked up in Denver, Colorado, and as a little hippie at the age of 18, and was, I mean, I'd been given a suite, it's a, it's a like, long story, at the MGM Grand Hotel in Colorado, and I was wearing a little Bieber T-shirt that had little stars all over it, literally from the 70s and a pair of ragged old jeans and a little Bieber t-shirt. And I went up to the, to the desk and said, um, hi, my name is Mary, there's a, there's a suite here for me. And they looked at my t-shirt and went, well, I guess you're one of those little stars, aren't you? And it was just like the cutest moment <laughs> in the 70s, because I was wearing a star t-shirt. Uh, no, I'm just me. And you know, it, was just, it was just such a sweet moment. And they took me up in this great big suite where I was there for three days with everything paid for because I was a spoiled little brat really and um and so that was my memory of my my the most famous piece of my wardrobe ever is my little Bieber star t-shirt that saw me into a oh, hotel that's adorable that is adorable <laughs> and um are there any kind of makeup trends that you love or hate at the at, that are out at the moment or are there any I haven't got a clue 
I mean, I think that the point where everyone was wearing too much makeup and to, you know, this whole kind yeah. of, you know, the, the, contour, the contouring, the blah, 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 the false eyelashes. When Ugh. I walk down the streets now and I see people with these massive, like, you know, six inch long false eyelashes and almost nothing else on. And I'm thinking, why are you doing that? You know, what do you think is attractive mm. about these long, long lashes? You know, you almost have nothing else in your skin. It's like. Don't mm. you know your eyes are so much more beautiful without this curtain falling in front of them, you know? So that kind of bothers me a bit. Um, so the false eyelash trend, I think, is, well, actually, it's fading fast, but there was a point like five years ago when makeup became much too heavy. Yeah, no, I agree, especially on young girls who would do it. Exactly. Sort of a kind of polyfiller makeup. Yeah. Your dress sense, I know, is kind of quite bohemian and quite and sort of free and chilled. Um, but is there anything that you or you turn to when you think, "Oh my God, I've got to go to some big event, or I've got to rock up looking my best," or an outfit that, when you're feeling insecure, you put on and it empowers you. So really a sort of birthday suit. Do you have a birthday suit that... I mean, I think probably the things that empower me most... I'm, I just, I, you know, I went to this great big party and I had this white Armani jacket that is so beautiful. Jacket, not a coat, mm. jacket. And, you know, I had the white... The dress code was white. So I had my Armani white jacket on top of a white little cotton dress. And it, I know how chic mm. it was. And I, you know, I have a few Armani... When I want to look great at a dinner table, and it's a form, formal-ish, um, I put on an Armani jacket, I have to say. They're so easy to wear. They're so relaxed. You, you know, they're not a statement. They're just really beautifully cut, and the fabrics are so amazing. Yeah. yeah. You know? Classy just, as shit. Yeah, classy as shit, and really relaxed, and doesn't, it's not making a statement at all, and it's just really easy. You can mm. wear them over anything, you know? Mm. Yeah, and they fit like a dream. Mm. All right, my darling. Well, listen... I just think you're amazing and I think everyone needs to, who is listening, please know that Mary, without question, oh. is the best makeup artist this country has ever seen. And I'm not just saying that as your friend. You had, you, you know, Charlotte Tilbury was your assistant. You taught her everything and you are incredible and I hope next time I speak to you, it's Dame Mary Greenwell. Oh, darling, thank you so much. You're so wonderful. And I love you. And it was just such a pleasure to do this with you. I promise you, I've never done a podcast before. And this is my first and only. And I'm so happy it's with you. It's been an inspiring hour speaking to you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And you're a wonderful dear friend and I think you're amazing and what a joy this has been for me too darling oh thanks Mary I completely forgot this was a podcast about clothes but love catching up with her and discussing pretty much everything else now for the final time in a while here's our dazzling duo with Sirocco
You can find Duo's new album Destino at duoguitarmusic.com and follow them at Duo Guitar Music. You can find Mary on Instagram at Mary Greenwell and you can find us at MyWardMail on our socials, on our website at MyWardMail.com and of course, please subscribe, rate and review us on your chosen podcast platform. Well, that's it. Thanks so much again to Mary, to Duo and of course, thanks to you for listening. Catch up soon. Until then, my wardrobe is officially closed. 